Good morning. It's, it's an honor to be here today. Um, I have met your pastors at the East Van Ministerial. Uh, I met Chris when he was here and John. I've met Mitch. Always such a warm connection. Feels like we're part of the same family. As pastor of East Van Vineyard since 1996, I have felt very encouraged uh, by, by your people, uh, by you people uh, in our journey in East Vancouver. And there's been some, some cross-pollination there with uh, Inner Hope. I think some of the folks we knew over when we were at the Salvation Army were involved and uh, share a very common heart in our journey with an indigenous community. Uh, I understand one of our members, Sini Karlik, is going to be with you. Uh, in the next few weeks. She is a residential school survivor and was on the delegation to Rome uh, in April to uh, seek the papal apology, which we saw in July. So we share a common heart and journey. And today, rather than taking a lot of time to introduce myself, I'll introduce myself through my, my sermon and because I think it very much... Uh, telling my story will convey what I want to share to you about the practice of spiritual direction. I understand that you have been on a journey of uh, cultivating a rule of life, which are finding spiritual practices as means of grace in your growth in Christ, and individually and corporately, which is, which is wonderful. And uh, I want to commend the practice of spiritual direction as part of your rule of life. And it may look different depending on where you are in your life. So what do I mean by that? And why, is, why do I think it's so important? Well, first of all, I want to say that there's two kinds of spiritual direction, I think, that can occur in our lives. And th- I'm going to... In, uh, convey those to you by stories. And the first story I want to talk about is, is my own growing up years. I grew up in a Pentecostal pastor's home. And while being a teacher, a school teacher and school administrator full-time in, in public school districts in Alberta, my father also planted churches <laughs> in all that spare time he had, also being a dad and I don't know how he did it, but he, he didn't only plant the churches, but he, he physically built them. In fact, we often lived in those churches uh, as parsonages, and then we'd, he'd build his, our own house for us to live in. And there was uh, never a time we didn't live in a house he, that he didn't build. And as a teenager, growing up in this environment, I went through this phase of rebellion against my parents' faith, But at the age of 16, I went through a deep period of brokenness and pain uh, that that drove me back to Christ. And I was captured by his love and was set ablaze, uh, set on fire for Christ and decided to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. And a few months later, I remember going through this terrible valley of doubt in my faith. And I began to wonder if any of it was true. I had this continual stream of thoughts. You ever had this happen where it's like a vicious cycle? I go, I wonder, how do I know that there's even a God? 
You know, it was the time when, when um, atheistic evolution was being taught in the schools and the idea that we were here by chance, it was kind of part of the curriculum. And I thought, well, how do I know? How do I know that that isn't true? And, and after convincing myself with some uh, intellectual wrestling that there had to be a God with all this beauty and order around us. But then I'd say, well, how do I know I've got the right God? There's so many gods, there's so many religions, and there's billions of people in the world who believe differently than me. So how do I know mine is true? Maybe we're wrong. Well, then I'd pull out, remember Josh McDowell? I'd pull out Josh McDowell's evidence that demands a verdict. It was kind of the apologetics manual of the 70s. And it was kind of give, you know, step-by-step uh, uh, -step ways of knowing intellectually that there was a good reason for the faith. And I'm, I'm not against any of that, but it would only take for a while. It would kind of settle me for a bit, but then I'd go back into this vicious cycle all over again. And my parents noticed this heaviness on me. And I remember one evening, I was sitting alone in the living room, really down in this despondency. And they came and they just sat with me. And I don't remember much about what they said except that they were so present to me. And they listened to me. They conveyed compassion and concern. And, and they validated my doubts. And I also remember, I do remember what they didn't do. They didn't try to fix me or argue with me or give me intellectual reasons as to why my thinking was wrong. And my mom's voice, and she's still alive, uh, approaching 90, but I remember her tender voice just saying, you are going through this, you're caught in this vicious cycle. And it wasn't a, a judgment, it was just, just seeing, just naming my pain that I was in, of doubt. And she... As she did so, I felt known. I felt heard. I felt uh, somehow understood, and I was given space. I was given the space just to be with my pain, to hurt and to suffer. And there was something about their presence to me that seemed to dissolve that vicious cycle I was in. And from that day on, it never again had the same power over me, ever again. This was as a teenager, 16-year-old kid. And you know, I don't remember them ever resolving the questions for me, but somehow simply being a loving and listening presence to me, it went past my mind where I was caught in this thing and went right to my heart. And let me know that in spite of all the unresolved questions, because there were still were unresolved questions, God was with me. God was with me, God was for me in all of my questions, and I was loved in the middle of it. Remember Blaise Pascal, that French mathematician, kind of product of the Enlightenment, the great mathematician? Uh, some great quotes, but my favorite one is, you know, it was during that time when, you know, uh, Descartes, I think, therefore I am, which is not true, by the way. You just are. 
You're, you're an expression of God's love and life and creativity. But it kind of be, we kind of worshiped the brain, didn't we? And, and we are, most of us are still products of that era. But Pascal said this, the heart has its reasons that the mind knows nothing of. And there was something about love that went past the mind to my heart. So years later, I, as I look back on that experience, I realized that my parents had offered me spiritual direction. Now, they may not have called it that, but that's what they were doing. They were just a loving, listening presence to me, attentive to what was happening in my life. But there's another kind of spiritual direction, and so I'm going to tell you another story from my life. The second way that spiritual direction occurred for me was kind of the journey began about 14 years after that. I was about 30 years old. I'd been already involved in full-time ministry for over 10 years or more. And I'd been involved in youth ministry, particularly an associate pastor in a very rapidly growing, fast-going, charismatic church in Calgary. We had an exploding youth group, and I was traveling across the country in our circles, preaching in youth rallies, etc. And in the middle of it, I suffered a severe ministry burnout. And it was so bad that I almost lost my life at the age of 30. And it took me out of formal ministry for at least five years. I was heavily medicated uh, for a season and just suffered a total psychosis and, and mental illness. And so it took a long time to recover. And part of that recovery was in the UK uh, with a group of house church movements that opened their homes and hearts. They knew us from my previous travels. And they opened their home for my wife and my two children to just get better. And we took a couple of years there and moved back to Alberta and then shortly after moved out to Vancouver and just felt God just say, start all over again. Just don't even take a ministry position. Don't pastor. Just take an apartment where you can afford it, which was <laughs> back then was a little easier than today. Uh, and start over. So I got a little working class job at UBC. Worked there for five years. We just felt God say, live in the city and love without an agenda. And that's kind of what led us to Eastside Vineyard. Uh, in 1991, we'd, we'd been in that church for 31 years. At the time, they were meeting at Hastings Community Center. And during the process of rebuilding my life, I re enrolled at Regent College. Ever heard of that? And I took a course on pastoral care. And one of the first things they said is that good pastoral re care requires good self-care. Well, you know, I grew up with the JOY acronym, right? Jesus first, others second, yourself last, right? But what happens with that is yourself usually gets the short end of the stick, right? So I learned that if you're going to be a, a good pastor and provide good pastoral care, you have to provide good self-care or you're not going to be able to care for anybody else. 
And one of the elements of self-care that they commended was spiritual direction. Well, I'd never heard of that before. So I began to do some reading on it, and they gave us some leads. And I followed up and acquired a spiritual director, and I still have the same person 20 years later. Kind of, I'm kind of one of these long-haul guys. How many kind of get that sense, right? And so through some reading, uh, I attended uh, my first session. Our church, VEV, Vancouver Eastside Vineyard, affirmed my need to do that. They felt it was good for me, good for the church. And so they blessed me to take an afternoon a month to do this. And it required an afternoon a month because it was way over in Marpole, and I'm an East fan, like Hastings, sun, sunny, uh, Sunrise Hastings area. So it, it required me getting in the car, driving uh, over to Marpole. And, um, and I always found this quite hard because with pressing deadlines, you, all, you know, you have them as a pastor, to take an afternoon off with work, uh, off work, which included the necessary time to make the drive. And by the time I got home again, the one-hour session, yeah, it was a, it was a full afternoon. Furthermore, this was the hard part. It was an act of slowing down in a world that values speed. Have you noticed that? Whether it's your phone, your computer, we value speed, don't we? When you're driving, you know, I came back from a sabbatical a few years ago, and I had just so slowed down for three months. You know what it's like to drive in Vancouver when you've slowed down? It's like you just feel this pressure from behind. Get going. So that was hard. Even the sessions were hard at first because um, my director would, be, would begin with a warm welcome and uh, invoke a blessing, inviting the presence of Jesus to be with us. He would light a candle. And then he'd invite me into silence. Well, I'm a charismatic. You know, I used, we as Pentecostals used to say our quiet time was between breaths. So silence felt like, you know, what's, what's hard about silence is you feel like you're not doing anything. You're not getting anything done. At least when you talk, you know, you're getting something done, you, whether it's prayer or, you know, shaping somebody up or whatever it is, Right? And so that felt really awkward. But you know what was even more awkward? Was sitting in silence with somebody else. That's, that was crazy for me. It felt so, I felt so naked and vulnerable. And actually it still does. I still, I still feel that inner, inner uh, aversion. But I'm learning that's not a bad thing now. You know, Adam and Eve in the garden... You know, they, they were naked and unashamed. And there was, I think there's that sense of coming back into vulnerability that is part of spiritual direction. And I have to confess, sometimes I actually felt bored. It just was so slow. I'd be driving and inner, I'd be fuming inside. I'd be going, I, don't, I can't afford to do this. I, I don't have time for this, you know. And, and, I, and I'd, go, I'd go in and I'd feel bored. And sometimes I'd actually almost fall asleep. In fact, in fact, sometimes I dozed. 
in the silence, you know? And uh, thank God I didn't snore, because I would have just <laughs> woke the world up. But uh, this sense of I can't afford to do this over time began to change to, you know what, I, I can't afford not to do this. And sometimes, you know, after silence, my director would, would say, well, just bring what's on your mind, on your heart. Just what, what. And, and sometimes it was easy to know what I was going to bring, and other times it was hard. Uh, sometimes I knew there was something going on in my life, a decision I had to make, uh, an issue I was res- wrestling with. One time, one of the most vivid times I remember, I had a vivid dream the night before. And it was weird. It was a weird dream. But, but, I, but you know how some of those weird dreams, there's something going on down here. You go, hey, there's, there's more going on here than, than just that strange, you know, pizza the night before that is affecting my brain. And I brought that, and that was a powerful and profound unpacking. Sometimes I'm struggling with sin or a temptation. And it was just, you know what it's like for a spiritual leader to know that he or she has a place they can go where they're known. They're just known. And I think the, the confession was, was a, a beautiful, safe place. Other times I didn't know quite what to bring. But I would just start with a hunch after the silence, and it was remarkable to see how the conversation went. My director primarily would listen to me, be attentive to me, ask me some good questions, inviting me back into silence to listen for the Spirit's voice and invitations, and and through it, I was reminded, the, 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 the summary result every time is I was reminded of who I was. I mean, that sounds so simple, doesn't it? But isn't that the number one problem of the people of God in the Bible is they forget. They forgot who they are. And they forgot what story they were in. And I was reminded just at a heart level of who I was, the story I was in, that I was in God's story, that God was with me and I was profoundly loved by God. Similar to what I experienced with my parents all those years ago as a teenager. So when I talk about the rule of life, I'm talking about, so there's two kinds. One is kind of the way that it happened with my parents. And I think we've all, in some ways, if we've followed Jesus at all, we've experienced that, haven't we? Where someone's been a loving, attentive presence to us. Non-judgmental, but just accepting and receiving us and, and creating space for us. One of the most, I, I am now a spiritual director myself, And one of the most profound things that often happens is in the first one or two sessions, sometimes the directee will just weep because they feel, and and for, it's not anything I've said, it's it's just that they have space for them to be loved, to be listened to. So most of us hopefully have experienced that. So that, uh, that's, hopefully going on in our lives. But the rule of life is where you just become more intentional about that. And there's a number of ways you can do that that I'll talk about. Um, So what is it? What is spiritual direction? Why is it so important? It's It's a term that's actually not used in the Bible. It's a practice that goes back 
to ancient times, even through the Old Testament, even outside of the biblical story in the Greco-Roman uh, uh, philosophies. There was, there was different expressions of it. It was obviously in the early church and it became very prominent with the desert fathers and mothers, uh, the desert monastic movement, the monastic movements of the medieval ages. And while there are similarities in other streams and we can learn from them, we're specifically speaking of spiritual direction in the Christian context as followers of Christ. So what is it not? First of all, it's not counseling. It's not mentoring. It's not coaching. And it's not, this sounds paradoxical, but not overly directive. Now, it can include elements, all four elements. There can be uh, elements of the counseling, mentoring, coaching. But that is not the core of it. I think one of the best uh, definitions of spiritual direction that I've heard is by... Uh, uh, a Catholic, Thomas Green, who wrote this, with the premise that the Holy Spirit is our director. Spiritual direction is hearing, discerning, and responding to God's continual initiatives of love towards us. All with the help of others. So let's look at that phrase for a minute. Let's just unpack that. First of all, there's uh, several premises that I mentioned here that, that are included in this. The first is that the Holy Spirit is our director. In spiritual direction, the practice recognizes that it is the Spirit of God that is leading the session. And it recognizes the presence of the Holy Spirit in the directing. Romans chapter 8, verse 14 says, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Right? So we have this promise that the Spirit of God is at work in the directing. So in some ways, the, direct, the Spirit of God in the directing actually directs the session. The Spirit of God in the director. And the director simply notices, watches, observes, and works with that. Works with that. The director is called to be present, to listen, to be attentive, and to help the directee notice God's continual initiatives of love. I love that, and that's the second premise. The second premise is that God is continually initiating towards you in love, towards me, towards us. Each of us were created in love, by love, for love. Little children love one another, for love is of God. Right? Those who don't love don't know God. Right? So, you are God's beloved child. We each have a unique, I love this, unrepeatable story. Each of us. To use a common, maybe, metaphor, 
Each of us are different episodes of the same season. Each of us are different versions of the same story. But you have an unrepeatable story as part of this big story of God's rescue that's going on. And so, you are a unique expression of God's love to the world, and yet we're all part of that story. And thirdly, premise three is we need the help of others to discern these initiatives of love. God's, uh, to, to hear, to see, to notice, and to respond appropriately. We were made for community. And an essential part of being human is being relationally connected in community with our belovedness to God being mirrored to us through others. None of us has 360 degree vision. Right? Physically it's true, isn't it? But it's also true spiritually and emotionally. None of us has 360 degree vision. You see things I don't see right now. So we need the help of others to see our blind sides. And to call us on what Thomas Merton uh, termed the false self. And the false self simply defined, it's a bit of a psychological term, but I think it's, when you look at Merton and Nowen and a few others, the way they describe it, it's, it's very similar to what the Bible would call the flesh or the sin nature. And, and the reason why I find this language helpful, being pastoring in this city for 30 years, is that often those terms, people just zone out when they hear flesh or sin nature. It's kind of like some... And, and so what do we mean by the sin nature? What do we mean by the flesh? And, and Christians have been guilty of confusing the body with the flesh, haven't we? That Gnostic idea. And that's not what the flesh is. What happens is when we don't believe that we are God's beloved as much as Jesus is when he heard the Father's voice saying, you're my beloved son, my beloved daughter, and you I am well pleased. Before he preached one sermon, healed one sick person, cast out one demon, all he was was God's boy at that time. And the Father was so delighted. And each of us have that same belovedness to God. When we don't believe that, we then out of that unbelief, form a false identity. And it's independent of our relationship with God. It's independent. We, and, and Henry Nouwen uh, wrote on this in his book, Spiritual Direction, says that there's three primary ways that we do that. I am what I have achieved, right? I am what I possess. I am what others think of me. Right? Those are the kind of the three ways, right? How many likes I get on Facebook, or how, much, how, how successful I am at the university. We heard some of that in, in the prayer time today, right? And you know what the worst religious false, the, the, the worst false self is the religious one. The religious false self. That's the one Jesus came up against with the Pharisees so much. And it was the one that ki almost killed me at the age of 30. Because you know why? Because my false self was, we're going to have the biggest youth group in Canada. Of course, we covered it with spirits over near. We're going to have revival. We're going to bring God's kingdom. But it was all sp spiritual guys for that false self. 
It wasn't all bad. There was still God in it. I'm not saying it was all bad. But the false self had come in. So you know what the primary result was? I was never enough. I could never do enough, pray enough, preach enough, preach good enough, win enough souls enough. Just couldn't do it. I still wasn't, still that lack of enoughness. And you know, it's, it often comes with comparison, doesn't it? We think we're doing good, then we compare ourselves with another church, another ministry, other, other professor, you know, we heard today. You know, all of that, that's that false self. And what spiritual direction did for me is it brought me over and over again back to my true belovedness in God. And I think it's one of the main reasons why I've been able to enjoy longevity here in Vancouver. It's not an easy city. And I'm not saying that God doesn't move people around and move people on. But often it's for the wrong reason. Right? Sustainability. God, it's not how you start that counts. Boy, we've had some spectacular starts, haven't we, in the last 20, 30 years in the body of Christ in North America. Man, we've seen some spectacular crashes too. God is interested in how you finish. It's how you finish that counts. And I think, for me, spiritual direction has been one of the main uh, contributors as a means of grace to me. Well, a couple of scriptures... Uh, uh, images that I think come from scriptures. One is friend of the groom that John uses, John the Baptist, where he says the friend, uh, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And I have to say, I have experienced that joy as a spiritual direction. Uh, seeing people meet the bridegroom and being a friend of the bride and the groom and, and just being part of that encounter. My spiritual direction, director would often invite me back into silence to listen for what Jesus was saying to me. And, and how would Jesus respond to me? And uh, it, was, it always feels like such holy ground when, I, when people open up their lives and I'm able to walk with them and journey with them. And my director has communicated the same to me. And I've actually seen it as a form of evangelism too. Just think if evangelism is not trying to bring God to people, but actually having eyes to see how God is already at work in their lives and noticing it. And I experienced that for five years at UBC in the mining engineering department. You ever work with a bunch of engineers? That was an experience. <laughs> and then we've, we've experienced that in our journey with Lower Post, this indigenous Cascadene community, the site of one of the most notorious residential schools in Canada's history. People were going to jail when we arrived in Vancouver because of the crimes that were committed against children and families up there. But we've been on this 25-year journey of healing. And one of the journeys is learning together how God was already at work in them before any white people came. How God was already speaking to them. How God was already preparing them for the good news. How different would the story have been if we'd have gone 
And some did. I'm not saying everybody didn't, but so, and some did. But what if the majority of us would have said, God's already at work here. Like everyone else, we need the gospel, but let's see how God's already at work. How different would this story have been? Well, we can still do that. We're, we're having to go through some reconciliation and, and dealing with pain. Well, I had more to say, but I am out of time. So what I'm going to do is maybe tell you a story of... Oh, oh, the midwife. The midwife is another... You know, do you ever notice Paul gets his, his metaphors mixed up? How much time do I have, Mitch? I want to be respectful to your timer. Okay. All right. be, be careful. Be careful. I'm a Pentecostal. <laughs> No, no, I'll respect your, I know I'm a pastor, I understand the boundaries. So, hey, a couple of things, this, this, this idea of a midwife. So, uh, so Paul says, for, for whom I'm again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And of course, he wasn't, when we hear you in our culture, as you've probably heard your teachers say, we often think individual, but it's, he was talking about them as a community. That Christ be formed in you as a community. And, and so, is he, the, is he the mother here? Or is, are, are the Galatians the mother and Christ is being born? Like, and so, I like to think that this was maybe Paul saying, oh, there's a, there's a birth going on and, 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 and I'm involved and I don't quite know how to express it. You know, I'm not an expert in this, but I, there's labor pains. And I think he's talking about midwifing here with them. And uh, Dr. Jackie Lewis, an African-American pastor, reflects on a friend's wise counsel shared in a time of need. Stay where the pain is, she said. She was writing about how mourning the toughness of 2020. Remember 2020? A year marked with political upheaval, racial violence, the isolation and death from a pandemic, raging environmental fires, and the fire that took my sanctuary. I was feeling very low and frankly so weighed down with grief. I didn't really know how to move forward. I kept throwing myself into work, running fast to do something about the pain. But my ever-wise friend, Lynn, said, Wait, stay there with the pain. Stay where the pain is, where the suffering is, where the struggle is. Stay there. That's where it's going to come. The insight, the knowing, the wisdom. Right there, Jackie. It's not here yet, but it's coming. Wouldn't it have been great if Job's friends would have been spiritual directors? And when it comes, I'll midwife it with you. It will come. We will do it together. Wait for it. It will come right where you are in the hurt and the sorrow. That's right where the insight is. That's where the answer is. That's where the wisdom is. The transformation is there. The rebirth is there. And you're not alone. Your friend. So this is spiritual direction as a community. Your friend, your lover, your family, your helper. Someone will from your posse. Do you have a posse? They'll midwife it with you. The healing will come and you will emerge shaped in the merciful womb of the fiercest love. The pain of birth is excruciating. But someone who loves you knows how to reach in and grab you and hold on to you until you make it through. You'll emerge lighter, less encumbered, 
ready for new stories, transformed by old ones. I so love that. This is spiritual direction. This is spiritual companionship. It's being present to one another, to someone. It's giving them space. It happens as we learn to be present and attentive to each other. And I believe it also happens through being intentional about it. And there's some good material that I commend. Henry Nouwen's Spiritual Direction, Wisdom for the Long Walk of Faith is great, simple introduction. A lot of denominations have their own spiritual direction program. I don't know if yours does, but numbers of them are now developing this. It used to be just the Catholics, <coughs> but now various denominations are training and raising up spiritual directors. Make sure you go to someone who has formal training, making sure they're in spiritual direction themselves, making sure that they are accountable and have supervision. Another way is group spiritual direction. That's been a rich experience for us in our church, where we actually prepare and train home groups. Not, they can't get too big, but to do a group spiritual direction. A Catholic writer, Rosemary Doherty, has written a book called Group Spiritual Direction, Community for Discernment, which gives skills. So the other night I had an interesting midwifing experience. Uh, five years ago, a couple that were in recovery, coming out of addiction, came in their mid-40s, asked me to marry them, so I did. And they've been in, in our community, it was hard in COVID, and he, he wanted to give back, so often Sunday mornings he was working at a recovery house. Uh, a few months ago, I found out that he had a, uh, they let me know that he had a terminal illness, so I was bringing communion to him in his home. And the other night, uh, I felt this urgency because he'd, he'd been in and out of emergency and he was in acute care. I felt this urgency Saturday night just to go up. His wife was tired and, and had been there 48 hours, had gone for a break. And Saturday night I'm up in this room and I could just sense he was ready to go. I could, I could feel it. And uh, I just felt prompted just in that hospital room just to sing the hymns I love sang Amazing Grace, sang Brian Dirksen's song, Faithful One. Uh, and as I sang these words, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. It's grace that has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And within minutes of that, I was informed later that he had passed. And I would say that one of the most significant graces that have helped carry me into the second half of life has been this grace of spiritual direction because it's invited me to slow down, invited me back to I really am. We need one another to see God at work in our story. Means of grace. One more quote and I'm done. Another person passed away this week named Frederick Buchner, great Novelist, writer, uh, professor, theologian, pastor. And he wrote a book called, uh, uh, I can't quite remember the title of it. It's Telling Secrets, I think it is. It's his memoir. And he said, what we hunger for, perhaps more than anything else, is to be known in our full humanness. And yet that is often just what we also fear 
more than anything else. It is important to tell, at least from time to time, the secret of who we really are and fully are, because otherwise we run the risk of losing track of who we are truly and fully are, and little by little come to accept instead the highly edited version which we put forth, don't we, in hope that the world will find it more acceptable than the real thing. So it's important to tell our secrets, too, because it makes it easier for other people to tell us a secret or two of their own, too. So, for reflection, with whom can you share secrets and where are you known? And who, I guess maybe I could reverse that, who's safe with you to share their secrets? May the Lord bless you in this journey of spiritual direction. However he leads you, I pray that God will, will uh, bless you with the same grace, means of grace, that it has been to me, so that you can live that long obedience in the same direction. Amen.